So I'm open to different opinions on this, but I feel like there's a moment when you're locked in the back of a police van where you kind of have to pause and wonder what you could have done a little bit differently so it wouldn't have led to this place. For Taryn and I, that moment came a few years ago. We were living in Botswana, and my siblings had, been, had come down to visit from Canada, and we spent some time in South Africa. And uh, after a while in South Africa, we were heading back to Botswana, and we were about five hours from home in the city of Johannesburg, and we realized, you know, Nelson Mandela passed away a few months before this, and his house is in Soweto near Johannesburg. We need to go visit that. That'd be an amazing thing to see. So... We knew that Soweto had quite a bit of crime, but we'd been there before, and so we thought that we could manage it. So we said, let's do this. Just to be safe, uh, when we got to the place near his house, it was a few blocks away, we parked the truck, and we made sure that everything that we would uh, need to get back to Botswana would not be on ourselves, but would be locked in the truck. So we did that, we locked it up, and we walked to his house and had a great time. It was amazing to be able to see the history uh, of where Mandela had been uh, at early on in his life. After we finished, we walked back to the truck with no incident. It was great. Until we got to where we had parked, and my sister turned around and said, Nate, the truck's gone. Now, they say in Soweto that car thieves and their chop shops are just so proficient at what they do that from the moment that your car is stolen to 30 minutes after, after 30 minutes, you're not even going to be able to recognize your car. You won't even be able to find it. They'll have changed it that much. That truck was gone. And so are all the things that we needed to get back to Botswana. Namely, not just our clothes and our cameras, but our wallets, our residence permits, and our passports. So the police were helping us out that night, took us to a homeless shelter. The next day, we found ourselves in the back of a police van on our way to the Canadian embassy trying to figure this out. And for myself, I was wishing that I'd been a little bit more street smart about all of this. We managed to eventually, after about a week, get back to the Botswana border with some documentation, but there was still an incident where we couldn't get across the border and then our bus left without us and I ran across illegally to try to stop it and I caught it, but I had to go back and the bus left anyway and we lost the few remaining things that we had. Eventually we hitched a ride, we managed to get home. We were a bit overwhelmed and exhausted. But what was even more overwhelming, although in a very different way, was the response that we got from our friends in Botswana. We realized that while we were gone, we'd managed to be in touch with some of our friends, and one of them had been in touch with our family back home, just making sure that they were okay. He'd never met them, but he wrote and just comforted them and made sure that they knew that we were fine. Actually, Siletso and my mother-in-law still keep in touch. Makilipile brought us a bag of fresh maize and some watermelons. The church at St. Michael's, gave us 2,000 pula that they raised together. That's about $200 to buy new clothes, even though they're in the midst of trying to raise money for their church, which hadn't been finished being built as they were using it. Our friends at First Offenders Prison, when we got in there, it had been a few weeks since we'd seen them and they knew that there was something up. And they'd heard some of the stories. Some of the South African guys in there took us aside and they said, tell us what happened. And we started to, they said, no, no, no. Like, tell us exactly what happened, everything that you can remember. And we told them, and they tried to gain as much information as they could to see if, that they, see if they could track down who had done this and if they could get our things back for us from South Africa. It didn't work. But shortly after we arrived home, we also got a visit from a group of 20 youth who were walking down the road, walked into our yard and into our house, into the living room. And there were youth from a local church who gave an impromptu choir concert for us, wanting to just come over and check up on us and just sort of 
if we were feeling a bit down, just to lift our spirits because of this. We always knew that whatever it was that we were doing in Botswana, we were receiving way more than we could ever hope to give. And this was just one of those moments where that was just tangibly evident. Now, this may feel a little bit far removed, but the reality is this. For Taryn and I, two Niagara kids, we had an opportunity presented to us in Niagara through an organization that understands the necessity of cross-cultural friendships. And it led us to some of the most surprising and meaningful friendships of our lives. And today, we all have that same open-ended opportunity. Here at Southridge, we're partnered with an organization called Compassion Canada. Compassion is right in the thick of the battle to release children from poverty, which, as you might expect, is a massive undertaking. But from personal experience of many people within our community, we've seen how incredibly this work is being carried out around the world. And we want more. We're sponsoring almost 400 children as a community, and we're also directly supporting seven communities doing child survival programs, literally helping the survival of babies and mothers in countries like Indonesia, Nicaragua, Uganda, Rwanda, and Ecuador. We want to foster friendships between ourselves and families and communities around the world. We want to sponsor more children. We want to encourage them as they grow up and to support their families and be a part of their communities. In this era, we can do all this without even leaving Niagara, although this can also lead us to leave Niagara. In this, our annual Hope Live series, throughout the month of November, we're going to be learning about how we can be a part of this story. And despite what you're seeing this morning, we have some pretty amazing speakers as well. This year, we're calling this series Eyes to See because if we're open to it, we're going to see and then receive what it is that God wants to do in our lives through the lives of our friends across the world. Now, admittedly, that was kind of awkwardly worded. I found myself saying, you know, we're going to see and then receive what it is that God wants to do in our lives. Because the eyes to see, as we generally understand that terminology, refers to the needs of others. I mean, we need to increase our awareness of the the needs of others so that we can help release other people from poverty, right? That's not all there is to it. In the first century, Paul, who was a key figure in the early church, saw that there was a disparity between two of the communities that he was getting to know, the church in Macedonia and the church in Corinth. The church in Macedonia was not well off financially. In fact, Paul describes them as living in extreme poverty. The church in Corinth, on the other hand, pretty loaded. Paul pulled no punches in asking the church in Corinth to contribute financially to support others who were impoverished. At one point in 2 Corinthians 2, 8, verse 8, Paul says, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Basically saying, put your money where your mouth is. If you're as loving as you seem, you'll contribute more financially than other people I've seen because I know you can. I mean, that's a pretty bold ask. He made clear to the church in Corinth that he appreciated their willingness to contribute their finances to help support others who are in need. But he also suggested that wasn't the end of the interaction. Paul wrote this a little while later. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. 
equality, right? The same in value. I mean, it's clear that the church in Corinth has enough to give financially and that the church in Macedonia doesn't. But Paul says that there will be a mutual sharing of what they each have. Not only what they each have, but what they each have plenty of. And not only what they each have plenty of, but that there will be a sharing of what they each need. But if a church that has plenty of money is being asked to give money to help those who are facing financial poverty, what does a church like that even need? And what can an impoverished community even offer them? Let's look at it this way. Through compassion, we're invited to spread the good news of Jesus, to contribute, to help release families and children from poverty. We have plenty, and so we give to those who don't, right? That sounds good. But what if this approach to these relationships is completely wrong? A few weeks, a weeks ago, our teaching pastor, Mike Krauss, uh, led us through a look at James chapter 1, and in particular, verses 9 to 12. And I'm sure that I'm, the, that I'm the only one here who easily forgets most of the message by the time I'm having lunch at my grandma's after the service. But just in case you're with me, here's a refresher. James, the brother of Jesus, explained that those who are financially poor actually have a distinct privilege to be undistracted from what God wants them to receive. James then continues by saying that wealth is not only temporary, it's also worse because it's a distraction from what's eternal. And let's be clear that when we're talking about wealth, we're not just talking about like the folks who are like, you know, Scrooge McDuck, like diving into a pool of gold coins. We're talking about like the level of comfort that we can all afford. Our comfort and wealth distracts us by preventing us from being in a place of humility, of knowing our need. Instead, we imagine ourselves to be, you know, self-reliant. In the book, Eyes to See, which we're all going to be receiving this morning, there's a story of a British man named Tony who was given the opportunity to go to Guinea-Bissau. And, and in Guinea-Bissau, he was exposed to some extreme poverty. And before he left, uh, he was saying goodbye to a man that he'd gotten to know. And he said, you know, I'm going to be praying for you um, because I've seen you in your poverty. And the man said, I'm going to be praying for you in your poverty as well. And Tony was a bit, looked at him quizzically, and the man said, well, I mean, you have God, but you also have things that distract you from God. Here, we just have God. If humility is the place to receive God, then wealth makes that very difficult. There are studies that show how wealth changes our posture. There's one from the University of California in Berkeley where they took 100 participants and they set up a room with hidden cameras with a Monopoly table. And they divided everybody into pairs. And they set these pairs to play Monopoly against each other. But just before they did, they flipped a coin and they arbitrarily decided that one person was going to receive differently than the other person. So one person was given more money to start out with. And every time they passed go, they received more money. And when they had financial penalties, they had less taken off. And as you can imagine, as the game went on, pretty quickly in each of these studies, the person who was receiving these benefits just quickly rose to being a lot wealthier than the other person. Now, as that happened, another change that took place was actually in the person themselves. The ones who were arbitrarily decided that they would be wealthier, their posture changed, their vocabulary changed, 
their demeanor changed towards the other person, the volume of their voice, the way that they played the game, the way that they started to smack their pieces on the board, the way that they started to demand the money from the other person when they owed it to them. They literally would, they'd be bragging about the monopoly money that they had even in the course of the game. And they even had a bowl of pretzels set up beside the game so that both of them could partake. But as the game went on, the person who had more and who was achieving more within the game consumed more and more and they consumed most of the pretzels compared to the other person who had less in the game who did not consume as many of the actual pretzels. The researchers would take everybody aside after the games and they would uh, ask them questions about how it went. And consistently, the people who had been given more wealth and who had obviously won the game would brag about how their superior strategy is what gave them the win. These weren't bad people. These were just people. They didn't even realize they were doing this, but this is something that wealth does to us. Simply put, as Mike said last month, having wealth makes faith harder. In Revelation 3.17, John, another leader in the early church, who was living outside of the comforts of the wealthy city that he was writing to, wrote this. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Theologian Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, starts the book uh, with a story of a fighter pilot doing complex maneuvers. And as this fighter pilot is doing her maneuvers, um, she wants to do a steep bank. And so she pulls up very sharply to go straight up and she smashes and explodes into the ground. What she didn't realize was that she had been flying upside down. In the Revelation passage, John tells us that our blinders mean that we don't realize that we are upside down. Even acknowledging this, it doesn't mean that that solves it, that we're now fully aware. It's still there. In our culture, our relationship with money and comfort, first it impoverishes us with our relationship with God, and then it blinds us to that poverty. In light of this, how can we imagine that we're the best ones to bring the freedom and truth of the gospel to people in other parts of the world? But then who is best positioned to lead the way in global outreach? And what can we learn from them? Now, global trends are drastically changing in most sectors from business to politics to culture in terms of how the world is being influenced and who is doing the influencing. As a group who's meeting as a part of the church this morning, let's take a quick look at the state of the global church. 100 years ago, near the beginning of the 20th century, only about 18% of the Christian population, the number of Christians in the world, were in the global south, like in developing countries. Now, 100 years later, at this point, 60% of the Christians in the world are in the global south, in developing countries, and that number just keeps on growing. But despite this rapid growth, the percentage of Christians globally hasn't changed in those 100 years. That means that even with the massive growth of the church in the developing world, it's being matched by the decline of the church in the developed world, our part of the world. The church is changing. Think about it this way. At Southridge, we're a Mennonite, we're a part of a Mennonite denomination, the Mennonite Brethren. I feel like there's like a number of people that just looked at their neighbors and said, really, did you know that? 
Okay, quick. So picture a typical Mennonite, what you'd think that people would picture as a typical Mennonite. You got it? I don't know if you went so far as to picture like an Amish bearded uh, farmer, but maybe something like that or something along those lines. Okay, here's a photo of an actually typical Mennonite. The average age of Christians is 30 globally. There are more women than men in the world who consider themselves Christians, and there are more Mennonites in Africa than any other continent. So this East African woman is more indicative of our most typical Mennonite. And it's not just Mennonites in general. The church in the global south is thriving. It's amazing. There's an openness to who Jesus is, what the church can be, how they can serve like Jesus. And the church, because of that, the church in the developing world is just growing and changing and making a difference. In Canada, we live in what we would call a post-Christian society. One of the implications of post-Christian culture is an inoculation to a growing faith in God. There's a feeling that I know what faith is about and we're susceptible to feeling that we've seen it all. We know what Christianity has to offer and we've either rejected it outright or accepted a form of it that we're not that willing to have challenged. We can decide right now which side of that equation each of us are on. But in both cases, if we're willing to acknowledge it, there's a similar disinterest in having our beliefs challenged or expanded. We can see the disinterest tangibly as church after church in Canada closes its doors. The idea of church simply becomes something of a quaint caricature. Here's a Canadian article I recently found called Repurpose Church Restaurants That Will Answer Your Prayers. Shrine dining is the next big thing. Whether you take a seat in this formal gospel church's confession VIP hideaway, the chapel lounge, or the festive revival dining hall, you'll be feasting on the region's unforbidden fruit under arched cathedral ceilings. The chef is spreading the gospel of local county products. I mean, don't get me wrong, this place sounds great, but this is kind of where we're at as a church in the eyes of our society, kind of like campy remnants of a bygone era in some ways. In contrast, in many parts of the world where the church is exploding, there's an openness to what's possible through God that we often find difficult to reconcile with our cultural beliefs. Here's an extreme example possibly, but let's see how this strikes you. In Mozambique, over the last number of years, there have been numerous reports of people being raised from the dead through faith. My immediate reaction to that, skepticism. On further reflection, examination of the stories, there's actually a lot of credibility. There's eyewitness accounts from Mozambique and people who corroborate stories and who have seen the same thing. And even other people, people from Toronto even, who have seen that and testify to the same thing happening out there. Now, after thinking about that, I still feel skeptical. How about you? What do you think of? Is that possible? And yet the church in this place, because of their lack of cultural blinders, dictating what is and isn't spiritually possible, may be experiencing something radical and frankly biblical that I can't necessarily experience because of the blinders of my own culture. We can barely accept the idea of it. I mean, are you still thinking of it? Have you decided? Is it possible? I don't know. I mean, even though it's consistent with the bizarre nature of what we say is the foundation of our lives, Jesus Jesus, who exemplified control over the laws of nature, including raising people from the dead, and who we fundamentally believe was raised from the dead himself. Jesus told us that we would be equipped, that we're equipped, and that we're meant to do as he did, 
and more. But there's a spiritual poverty. There's a poverty to our spiritual intimacy with God that makes it, that makes, uh, or that friends in different cultural contexts, they may not be blinded by our levels of wealth and they may be able to speak to. In fact, this poverty of spiritual intimacy is just one of four types of poverty that author Brian Fickert outlines in his book, When Helping Hurts. The second is the idea of poverty of community. We were speaking two Sundays ago about the fact that we often interact with each other uh, in a way where our posture is just kind of waiting for the other person to be quiet so that we can say the intelligent thing that we want to say. Or often that we're just not necessarily engaging too much in conversation or relationally because we're texting or waiting for a text or maybe there's somewhere that we have to be in our schedule and we're just wanting to end the conversation. Okay, here's something that makes me uncomfortable. In some cultures, the person who's face-to-face with you becomes the most important person to you. So in Botswana, for example, if you're on your way to your friend's house and your friend is expecting you for dinner, it's been prearranged, you know what time you're supposed to be there, you're going there, and on the way you meet somebody and that person needs to talk, you're going to stop and talk to that person even if it means that you're going to be late for dinner. You're going to keep talking to that person even if it means that you miss the dinner and don't show up at all. And that won't harm the relationship with your friend who you just stood up because when you see them next and they ask why you didn't show up, You'll just say, ne kitswarehile. In Setswana, that means, I was delayed. And that's good enough. Clearly, it was out of your control. You were delayed. I mean, only something important could have delayed you. So, totally understand. That's not going to affect your relationship with your friend because you would do the same for each other as well. You respect that face-to-face relationship. Now, I don't think that the takeaway is that we stop being reliable to each other in our commitments. But maybe how can we learn to better value the person in front of us? How often do we value our phones and our schedules more than the people we're talking to in person? Is there something that we can be learning from other cultures about that? Another experience of poverty is the poverty of being. Our relationship with ourselves and our view of ourselves. Sometimes I think perhaps we're more informed by our, you know, shame in comparison to the newest fitness guru on Instagram than we are as our identity as loved by God. The fourth is the poverty of stewardship, our relationship with the world around us. It's not always healthy. Have you seen what we've been doing to Niagara Falls for the last 250 years? We have needs in our poverty that we, by very definition, we can't meet ourselves because we can't see them ourselves. We need help from people who are not blinded in this way. The wave of global impact in the name of Jesus is growing and it's cresting and it's not necessarily from ourselves, but in many ways from the church in the developing world. It's not selfish to admit that we need to position ourselves to receive that wave of life-changing impact out where that's happening as well. All of this, is, this isn't to make us like, feel lousy, like people who have nothing to offer, while people in developing countries have it all together. God is doing and wants to do amazing things through our community. But we need, but our usual posture is that we have and that others do not. And that's clearly not true. We need to flip the script on our view of our friends in the developing world. This means even this terminology has to change. 
the thought that we're developed and they're developing? I don't think so. We've chosen that our point of contact with friends in, let's say, partner countries is through compassion. And a part of the reason for that is because compassion's entire model is predicated on the fact that there is a mutuality to the way that we need to work together. Instead of Canadians swooping into impoverished countries and deciding what's best and doing things our way and trying to be effective in how we know, it's, it's not that. It's the communities led by the local churches who are making the decisions based on their knowledge and work within their own community. We're invited to come and see and we're able to help expand the capacity through our finances and relationally, but mostly given that we're given the chance to, exp- uh, uh, we're given the chance, sorry, to observe and to learn. Sure, our money um, is a contribution and we need to keep making that contribution in increasing ways. But the second half of the equation that also has to happen is for us to accept what is being mutually offered to us. And if we're not receiving from our friends in these places, guys, we're missing the point. In February, I had the privilege of going to Nicaragua to see two communities that we as a Southridge community are supporting. It was unreal to see the impact of the work within these communities. And it was so humbling to, consi- to be considered to be a part of it, which all of us are, even through our financial contributions on Sunday mornings, uh, we all support this work together. Now, the folks in these communities, the mothers and babies, they needed serious help um, just to su- survive and they're receiving that support. And then the children are raised in these incredible programs and they're provided with educational support and new forms of vocational education and nutrition and physical activity and celebrations and gifts as unique individuals. It's just, it's unbelievable. It's amazing when you're in it. It just feels like a celebration. And the statistics show what a difference it's making in contrast with communities that don't yet have these supports. So I was with a group of pastors uh, on this trip from different Canadian churches and we were all just blown away by it. I mean, we'd, we'd bought in already. But still, on the last day, the local Nicaraguan compassion leaders introduced us to three young women who as children had been living in poverty and they'd been, become a part of the program through the sponsorship. So these young women, they spoke about what they'd come through, uh, what they'd come through in their lives and how their families had been released from poverty through their opportunities, through local compassion communities. How they were now working towards furthering these opportunities themselves by going back and helping other kids the way that they were helped. They were even doing more than that. Through their education, they were trying to expand the scope of that. The one young woman was involved in political science and she was hoping to be a part of, well, her ultimate dream was to be the ambassador to the UN from Nicaragua. Another woman was working on a medical degree and the third was in psychology and counseling. We could have listened to them for hours. We did listen to them for hours. We could have listened to them for longer. Uh, and as we were listening, we were just inspired. And one of the pastors said, like, tell me, like, how amazing is this? Just hearing your story is so inspirational. This must just be incredible for your sponsors to just have been able to have journeyed through this with you and uh, everything that you've been through over the years since you were little. And like, what are their names and what do they think of your story and where things are at right now? And the, the three young women, they were all a little bit sheepish and they hummed and hawed for a little bit. And it turned out that for all three, they knew the names of the people who had sponsored them. But over the years, these folks had never once interacted with the girls. They hadn't written letters 
asking questions to get to know their families, finding out ways that they could help, help out more, let alone getting to know them in a variety of ways well enough that they want, would want to or that there'd be any point to going to visit them. Or at this point, now that the girls were older and could do this themselves, that they could come and visit their sponsors. And actually, that had actually been a bit of a painful experience for these women, as each had wondered, why did these folks not bother to get to know them? Now, the pastors were there, and, we were all, and everybody was like, who are these people? What are their names? We're going to find out what their problem is. <laughs> you know, like, tough guy pastors like we have here at Southridge. Like, these sponsors had done a wonderful thing, right? Like, each one of the sponsors had sponsored one of these incredible young women since they were little girls. They'd helped to release them from poverty into a better future. That's great. That's amazing. But they also missed the point. The point is a reciprocal friendship. And they had offered money, but how amazing would it have been for them to have grown in relationship with these girls and with their families over all these years? How much would that have meant to them and to these girls? What else could they have been a part of over all of these years and now for the rest of their lives? And how important would that have been for these people, these folks who sponsored? They did a good thing. They were sponsors. We, all, we want all of us to do this. We want to do this in an increasing measure in our community. But in the end, they were just sponsors. In the passage from 2 Corinthians 8, Paul outright states that there is something quantifiable, distinct groups, though we may be, that we all have to offer each other. Even more so, Paul says that what we all have, we all have plenty of it. These incredible, articulate, and compassionate young women clearly have plenty to offer. Why would we miss the opportunity to be able to learn and receive from them? We've talked about our extreme levels of poverty and that the goal is equality. We need to position ourselves beside our friends in these contexts. We need to step up and get involved by sponsoring a child or multiple children. I mean, some families in our community sponsor a child of a similar age to each of their children and they get the chance to grow up together. Others who don't have children instead sponsor children with whom they now have meaningful relationships as they've grown up. Our family ministries pastor, Carrie Jones, has emphasized that there's a relatively short window that we have in the lives of children. But if we invest well, the impact of that relationship on both sides lasts far beyond childhood. This is going to depend on us being open to being freed from the blinders of our wealth and our comfort. In other words, we need to be radically generous. Our own poverty is so great and our blindness is so severe that radical generosity is necessary to be able to be freed to receive what we also need in radically generous measure. Think of it this way. If the goal is equality, and if we want to receive an equal portion of what others are experiencing in fullness, in freedom and community, in spiritual freedom, in our relationship with the divine, then we also need to seek equality in our finances with our friends in other parts of the world. This means not giving a little, so we have a little less, and they have a little more. It means that we want to get to the point where we're giving up a lot so that we're somewhat getting to meet in the middle as they receive from us and we receive from them and the lines between us and them become blurred. Friends, we're going to be hearing more in two weeks from Compassion Canada President-elect Alison Alley, who's also from Niagara. 
And she's eager to be able to uh, f- help facilitate us growing in these friendships alongside her. And this coming week, we're hearing from our friend, Jay Mbiro, who first experienced this type of relationship while growing up in poverty in Kenya. As we're going to see, everything in these interactions, no matter which side we're coming from, where we come from, has to be from a posture of this type of mutuality. The hope is that we can have the eyes to see our role both in giving and receiving. And I'm confident that we can begin that right here, right now, even without the benefit of the inside of a South African police van. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be open to being released from the poverty of our wealth. May we be a blessing to others as we do so. And may we in humility mutually give from our plenty and receive from the plenty that our friends in other parts of your kingdom have to offer. Amen.